Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 23. Pawn. Husson Hadam. Hungarian. <laughs> things that we want to talk about this week on the podcast was our new updated jingle. We still have the same intro that you've been listening to for 23 episodes so far, but my brother Jacob, who is an incredibly talented composer and musician in his own right, has been kind enough to make us an extended jingle, which you'll hear between uh, us talking now in the interview and at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. So if you're looking for original music for your own podcast, for your own show, for your own circus... Uh, be sure to check out my brother. His website is jacobavenermusic.com. Another thing that we've been doing this week is jackets. Yeah, Lindsay, Lindsay's been, well, it started off just costume design, and now it's just <laughs> your little fashionista designer. Yeah, I've been making some pretty sweet jackets that we're going to put up on our website. Yeah, so we've just sell. We have a variety of different jean jackets, some that we've we've had for a while, like this bright silver one from Naked and Famous and others that we recently got. And we, Lindsay had this idea to paint them for for costume pieces for slumber. Uh, and we only need like two painted for slumber, but we saw how they looked. We posted about them on Instagram and it got a pretty pretty good feedback. People saying they wanted their own. So we, you know, painted a few we, I say we. Lindsay painted a few more. <laughs> yeah, we. <laughs> you were you tried them on for me. I did. I was your mo- I was your model. Uh, but they're really cool looking. So go to our website, uh, hideawaycircus.com, Hit the merch tab. You'll be able to pick yourself up one. Pick up pick up pick one up yourself. One. Yeah, I mean, there's not very many because it takes me a while. They're all hand painted. So hopefully, I don't know how they could ever be mass produced. No, I don't think they would be mass produced. But if you want a piece of uh, circus history, <laughs> a piece of uh, awesome clothing, and a new jean jacket. Go go check that out. Yeah, it's fall weather. Everyone needs a jean jacket. Jean jackets are so in. Well, they're always in. But like, if you're looking at the the New York Fashion Week, so many collections have jean jackets with like patchwork. Remember we saw that one in Mew Mew, and then yeah. Mark Jacobs have has a whole like patchwork jean jacket collection. So this is a painted collection. So you'll fit right in with the New York Fashion Week. That's my point. <laughs> Speaking of this week, we saw a really, really good show. Yeah, it was a show at Atlantic Theater Company called Marie and Rosetta. It's a play by George Brandt, who also wrote the play that um, Anne Hathaway was in at uh, The Public, the one-woman show, which I'm blanking on the name right now. But it was a really good play. Really good. It was a play with music. I would actually say it was more music with a play. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's two uh, black actresses, two women who, you know, usually I don't, I don't particularly like two-handers where you just have two people on stage, but this was incredibly compelling. The dialogue was so funny. The music was so good. The performances were, you know, two of the best I've, I've seen, period. Basically the show is a a real story about uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, who was a, very celebrated gospel and R&B singer. And then her protege and collaborator, uh, Marie Knight. And so it's a true story. And with the music, dramatized, but with the music that they actually sang and played. So, um, and the two women in it are Keisha Lewis and Rebecca Naomi Jones, who are 
so talented. So talented. And the playwright is very nice guy. Yeah. I always feel like the word talented isn't really like a good word to describe anybody, even though I use it every single podcast. Talented? Yeah, because talented sort of implies like you didn't have to work for it, like you were born with this True, innate you just talent. Were talented. Like people are incredibly skilled and, you know, talented too. But True. Uh, just. There I mean, are multiple times in the show where you have goosebumps and you're yes. like, oh my God, that song was amazing. Yeah, I know they also both had to take like in- lessons to ha- learn how to play the instruments, even though they don't actually play in the show. They learned how to play so they could convincingly pretend to play. Tomorrow's a big day. Oh, I'm so excited. Going into the first day of rehearsals. For slumber. For slumber. <laughs> For slumber. Yes. We're rehearsing at uh, Mark Morris Dance Center. Which is uh, only a few blocks away from our place. We are in the morning. We're doing, you know, the regular typical meet and greet, and uh, you know, going over what we're going to be doing during the during the creation. Yeah. And then afternoon, we just start start mounting some of the scenes. Start, yeah, and I think we are going to Facebook live stream for a few minutes every day, uh, parts of rehearsals, which is cool. I've never seen that done. And Josh and I are toying with the idea of streaming. Um, an entire show. An entire show, because what we've been uh, constantly asked is why uh, why it can't be twenty one and or you, why you have to be twenty one and older to see the show, and the show isn't actually only no only appropriate for twenty one. It's just because of the venue. So I think uh, if we can stream it, then people who are under twenty one can also enjoy the show, which you know is something Josh and I are are passionate about bringing theater. And circus to people who uh, otherwise couldn't see it. Could, yeah, and so since you're maybe not in New York, we still want you to be able to see the show. Yeah, so follow us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Hideaway Circus. Uh, if you want to see photos and videos uh, of rehearsals and of the show, go check out our Instagram, Hideaway Circus. That's the handle. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go on iTunes, rate us, leave us a comment. That's the best way to give us feedback uh, and to help help us grow our podcast listener audience is that the right right yeah, terminology yeah. lovers yeah our podcast the best way to grow our <laughs> podcast lovers so today on the show we have amy cohen and i was really excited to have amy on on the episode because we don't have too many people who have a background like amy's unfortunately i was not there so you have to listen to josh the whole time <laughs> yeah hopefully I, i'm not too awful to listen to Amy is the executive director of ICO, which is the American Youth Circus Organization. She also recently started her own circus school in Ithaca, New York, called Circus Culture. Uh, she's done a Fulbright scholarship studying circus. She went to she got a master's degree in studying circus academically. She's somebody who's super keyed into the social circus scene and what is happening from a uh, much bigger national perspective. And usually, you know, we talk to people who are circus directors or producers or performers who are very much uh, thinking about circus from a show-based mentality. And Amy really brings this much bigger sort of industry overview that we haven't really had the chance to talk about yet. So this should be really interesting to anybody who who's interested in social circus, how you can use that to educate and teach people, and what's going on with circus schools in America. Enjoy the episode with Amy. I listened to it. I had a great time. Here's Josh and Amy. How did you get involved in circus in the first place? 
I got involved with circus because I was a monkey of a child, always kind of climbing on things, going up in trees, rigging up weird harnesses and swinging from limb to limb. And my parents, instead of kind of putting down the behavior, thought, let's find some sort of container for this. So I was very lucky to have support um, with my kind of tendency to be upside down and see the world from a different perspective. And I started going to gymnastics a little bit and I really enjoyed it, but I definitely was not the perfect gymnastics person. Um, and in my phys ed class in elementary school, gym was actually my favorite subject. And I just loved my gym teacher, Mr. Southall. He is, continues to be a role model for me. And we did a little bit of circus in our curriculum in elementary school. So I started in kindergarten to learn that. And then at the same time, I went to a music festival and I actually recently found a picture of this. And there was a juggling station and I balanced this broom on my chin and I was six at the time. And so that's like the first recorded circus moment of my life is balancing this broom on my chin. And from there, it just so happened that there was a circus camp in my community. It was about 45 minutes away, but it was at Purchase College, which I just listened to Jessica's amazing interview. I know Jessica went to Purchase College and found a circus path there. And my circus path really started in that physical place as well, although not related to the college itself, related to this amazing and very diverse group of circus people who started a circus camp called Circus Arts Camp at Purchase College. And I didn't really realize at the time, but now that I can reflect back on where my learning has come from and where it's brought me, I had such an amazing group of teachers there who came from really diverse circus backgrounds. So there was someone from a Hungarian state circus. There was there were founders of the Big Apple Circus. There were Ringling Clowns. There were community theater folks. And they all had come together to put this circus camp together. And it really has informed my way of thinking about circus to have had that influence from lots of different kind of access points of circus throughout the world. Were you aspiring to be a performer at the time or did you always have an interest in social circus? I, you know, I loved performing. I really enjoyed doing the physical act of circus. And actually I was reflecting on this when I knew I was going to be speaking to you about my path. And I had many moments throughout my kind of teen years where I kind of attempted to go into performing. And every time that door didn't quite open for me and some other door opened really, really wide and said, please come through. We need you here. So I auditioned for Circus Marcus tour twice, went to lives. It never quite worked out. I had a gig with SeaWorld. It fell through. I almost worked for Club Med. It fell through. All these things kept falling through in my physical circus practice it's not quite right for me to follow this path of being a performer. And at the same time, I love producing things and I love making things happen. And I think that that's kind of my unique role to play. And so I've always felt really alive in that. So I've just kind of followed that, but always kept doing circus as well. And I love performing circus at kind of a local community circus level, you know, but I've never really had that aspiration to be a professional circus performer. I feel like my role professionally in circus is much different than that. And I'm really glad to have found a different role, you know, that I couldn't have imagined was even out there because when I was a teenager, the role I'm in right now didn't exist. So it's nice to just keep following what opens, you know? So I guess the short answer is no, I didn't really plan to be a circus performer, but I think I didn't realize that there were other pathways until I stumbled over that roadblock and then found that there were other doors to go through. And I'm really excited about that as a concept because I'm noticing a lot of other people who grew up doing circus are finding that there are all of these other ways for them to really honestly and authentically be in the circus sector as working 
adults that is not just being a performer. And I think that's really exciting as everything expands and grows. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think when when I stopped performing, I used to get the question a lot. Do you miss performing? Do you wish you were on stage? And I was like, Mm. no, I used to perform for like a four minute act and I'd warm up for like an hour beforehand. And that was like (laughs) the circus I did all day. And now that I'm right. working on like the producing side when I was studying it in school, like I was doing it all, am doing it all day, every day. Like I feel much more involved in it from this angle than I ever right. did from a performing angle. So I, I for sure hear what you're saying on, on that front. But you, you studied circus in your, your undergraduate and your graduate school or just graduate school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so in undergrad, I was a theater arts management major. So that was the closest thing I could get. And I kind of went into it saying, I have this lens of circus that I would like to see this work through. Are you okay with that? And they were so supportive at Ithaca College where I went to school. And, you know, like even my professors would start to integrate when we talked about venue, they would talk about circus venue. When we talk about tours, they would talk about circus tours. And so it was a great way to kind of open up the conversation. And along with that kind of extracurricularly, I started a circus club at the college. So I was able to be being physical in circus, to be teaching my peers and also kind of studying the management side. And then I did go to grad school at NYU at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, where I applied with a major about circus education and creation. So that was really fun. Um, tell me a little bit more about Gallatin. So I went to, to, to Tisch for my undergraduate. And my friends who went to oh, Gallatin awesome. usually give me one of two experiences which is, oh my God, it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Or I felt completely lost because I had no completely structure. Lost, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I went into Gallatin. I feel like if I had done it as an undergrad, I think I would have felt really lost. But I had come out of this experience doing a Fulbright fellowship in the UK. And the Fulbright doesn't actually require any synthesis of your learning or experience. And it was an incredible year of just like processing so much stuff. And I felt like I need some place to like put this all out there and synthesize it and process it. And so the idea of going to grad school really came out of that of like, I feel like I've had this experience and I've, I'm generating all of these ideas about circus and circus future and circus in America, but I don't know where it's going to live and I don't know how it's going to survive beyond just being in my brain. And so Gallatin was a really great place for me because I went into it really with that being my only goal. I actually didn't go to you know, have a social community. I grew up in New York City, so I had friends and community there already. And I didn't really go for any particular professor or any particular class, even though I ended up having great professors and great classes. I really went to have two years to kind of dedicate myself to gathering information and being able to be more articulate, more successful, you know, just to be an, an ambassador for circus. And as a result of being able to kind of take reflection time. Can you tell me more about the Fulbright scholarship and what you were studying and what you, uh, what your experience in London was? Sure. Well, my experience in London was definitely probably the most radical, incredible year of my life thus far. And it was the thing that's amazing about the Fulbright is that they really trust you. Like once they say, yes, you can go and pursue this, this, statement of purpose that you have written in one page. Somehow you've written all your hopes and dreams in one page. Um, They really trust you to pursue it. And 
kind of the foundation of the Fulbright is cultural diplomacy is this idea that you're going to go to a place to absorb something that is happening uniquely in that time and place with the intention of bringing it back to the United States and helping to infuse whatever community you're in in the United States with that learning. And so my intention was to go to the United Kingdom because I had previously been there as an undergrad and I was an intern at what I call it Circus Space, now the National Center for Circus Arts. I'd been an intern there and so I had established relationships there. And I didn't feel like my time was done learning from the UK because it was the first time I had really experienced this kind of identity formation of what is circus today. I hadn't really thought about that when I was in the United States. I just loved circus and I loved doing it in my own personal experience. But that was the first time I had seen any circus performance that that really challenged my conception of what circus is. And I loved that. And it also seemed really clear that because the United Kingdom is really close to continental Europe, there's so much more um, influence from countries that really invest in circus, like France and Germany and Belgium. And it seemed like the United Kingdom was a really good middle ground because they were still not quite at the place that France was, but they were way ahead of the United States. And so I thought, well, maybe if I go look at how the United Kingdom is developing circus as an art form, starting to accept it on the funding, you know, with the tick box and all those things, I can come back to the United States and translate some of that or have a better awareness about what doesn't translate, which I think is also a really important thing is to be. And I've heard that on many of the podcasts that you guys have done talking about funding or structures or how things are done in other countries, that it's just a reality that we have different, different structural systems that allow circus to grow or not, that have allowed circus to be really grassroots in the United States, where it may be very top down in other countries with government support. And it was just really fascinating and energizing to be a part of that cohort. And the other thing I'll say is when I when I found out that I was going to do this Fulbright, I really thought it was going to be a year of solitude. I thought it was going to be this kind of lone weirdo among academics who I was in awe of and I thought I was just going to be kind of on my own. And it turns out that the cohort of people who were in the Fulbright with me turned out to be my greatest allies and inspiration, whether it was someone studying protein misfolding in South Asian populations who is a doctor by 23 or a contemporary percussionist uh, or someone working on visual identity and helping use that to like expose the issues of sexually transmitted infections among elders. Everybody had this really specific thing that they were so passionate about pursuing, which I think is very circusy, and they were going to do it no matter what. And the Fulbright was just an opportunity to kind of motivate forward and make deeper connections. But this was everybody's life work. And that was a really, really inspiring thing. So you finished, you went to your undergrad, you did your Fulbright, you come out of NYU. And where is your head at about circus in general and what you want to pursue at that point in your life? Oh, well, I'm just excited about it, as always. I'm always excited about it. But during my time in the UK, I had connected with so this is kind of where this is really the middle of my journey with the American Youth Circus Organization. So maybe it makes sense to go back a little bit. Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. And then so 10 years ago, which is really crazy, um, in 2006, I was a sophomore in college and I was teaching my peers circus. And that was the first time I had really taught my peers because I had been teaching kids and I love teaching circus. I love, love, love it. And 
I was a little bit amiss because it was like, I'm teaching my peers. It's not exactly like teaching kids. There's some other dynamics. I need some support. And so I found the American Youth Circus Organization by Googling and I emailed them. And David Hunt, who was the president at the time, wonderful guy who runs Prescott um, Circus in Oakland, California, he said, yes, come on, you can be a volunteer. And so I came through and I showed up at this circus educators conference in Chicago at Circus Steam. And the first workshop I went to was actually Jessica Hentoff's and it completely blew my mind. I was like, who is this woman? What is she doing? Who are these other people sitting around the table? This is the first time there are people whose shoes I clearly want to try to fill or at least walk in in some way, not fill, but just like, here's a path. I've never really experienced a path of people do this full time. They're entrepreneurial and they're working with young people and they're creating amazing work. And I just, had never really seen, you know, I went to my circus life was in the summer. It was like for six weeks, I was on my home planet at circus camp. And once the six weeks ended, I went home and kind of like tried to fit in and all the other things and like did theater, but like juggled on the side of the stage and, you know, unicycled in my driveway. And so this was the first time I thought, wow, these are actually like really intelligent businesses that are also nonprofits, some of them, and they're making more circus in the world. So going to the circus educators conference, really open things up. And the other thing that was cool about it is when I showed up and people said, who did you learn from? And I told them Chris Glover and Philippe Berquissin and George Oros, who are my mentors at Circus Camp, they all had been in the circus together um, in the 80s and the 90s. And so instantly I felt like I'm a part of this lineage. Like I didn't even realize that I'm a part of this lineage. And it felt really, really good. That kind of non-blood new circus lineage that's really spreading these days. So, which I think is a great thing. So 2006, then I just stayed involved with the American Youth Circus Organization, showing up to every event I could and volunteering and helping out and just meeting people. And in 2008 at the Circus Educators Conference, it became clear there was not going to be an event the next year. There wasn't enough people power. Nobody was really stepping up to the plate. And I had met this friend, um, Jesse Alford, who is now the board president of our organization. And he and I had become really good friends. And we kind of looked at each other. And Vivica Gardner, who is a, an amazing force of circus in New York and around the world, she kind of gave us this wink and like this nudge. It was like, oh, do it. Step up. Come on. And so we both kind of stood up with this woman, Gerilyn Burkery, who also helped us out. And we said, we're going to do it. We're going to produce this festival. We were 19. We had no idea what we were doing, but we were really passionate. And so we decided to produce this huge circus festival where 300 people came to a summer camp in Pennsylvania. And that is when we really felt connected to this organization thriving. Because at that point, youth circuses around the country were really starting to grow and change. And the American Youth Circus Organization was not able to keep up with it in the way that it needed to. It was kind of like these organizations were like lapping us, like we weren't really able to support them in any way. And so at that event, I'm going to name lots of really inspiring mentors to me during this. I hope you don't mind. I hope everyone goes and gets to know them. Zoe Brooks, who is, I don't even have the words to describe how much I am grateful to her. She is a strategic planner for nonprofits and also happens to be a circus woman and a circus founder. She runs the Trenton Circus Squad now in New Jersey. It's an amazing social circus. But she also has a background of nonprofit consulting and like real business experience that no one in the ICO community had. 
And she stood up and said, I'm going to help make this happen. I'm going to commit myself for two years to regenerating this organization, to fundraising for the first paid position, to just get us on our feet. Because if if we don't take some really drastic capacity building action, this is not going to survive. And we need it to survive for the community. We are each other's best assets. You know, we are a tiny little community. And so in that moment, she dedicated to keeping the organization afloat. And as a result of that, when I was on my Fulbright in 2010, she called me up and said that they were interested in hiring me for the first position. And I became the accounts manager, kind of operations person. And I did that through grad school, just 15 hours a week. And then she was very clear about transitioning out of the role after two years. And she mentored me into the role. So I became the executive director of the American Youth Circus Organization right after I finished grad school. And I kind of knew that that was happening as I was going. So I was able to to plan and integrate my studies into that future work and things like that. And so that's kind of how I came into the business position that I'm in now as executive director was really through a lot of careful and loving mentorship because of a desire for the organization to survive and a belief in it. You talk about what uh, ICO does and its mission and uh, what it has coming up. Sure. Yeah. So ICO is the American Youth Circus Organization, and we've been around since 1998, promoting the participation of youth in circus arts and also supporting circus educators. And the main things that we do are we gather people together in real time. So we have a youth festival every other year and we have a circus educators conference every other year. And they serve as this kind of place to fill your well if you are a circus educator or a young circus artist in the United States. And we also have a safety program, um, which helps to establish guidelines for safe practice in the circus sector. We have a new social circus initiative, which aims to double the number of social circus organizations in the United States over the next four years. And we also do things like we have membership for young people and we send them cool swag three times a year. We have a magazine. I do a lot of just general connecting of people, someone saying, I'm in this area and I want to start a circus program. Like, what do I do? So a lot of that kind of um, just helping people plug into the fact that you're not alone and there's this bigger structure and a lot of support. One of the really exciting things we've lined up recently is an insurance program where we have a direct relationship with insurance providers and listening to Rob Merman um, speak about the insurance trauma of not being able to to continue for that time with the insurance made me think about how grateful I am for the insurance people we work with now because it's really a game changer to be able to have affordable and comprehensive insurance for circus activities because it's so misunderstood. And so we've been able to work with two different insurance providers who really listen and experience circus in a way that they don't have to kind of fabricate that it's riskier than other things, you know, that people do on an everyday basis. So that's another great benefit of our membership. And I guess it's worth describing that we are the American Youth Circus Organization, but we have always served as well. And it just wasn't in our capacity when we first started to diversify our um, our programs to include safety, to include social circus. So that stuff has all started to be possible once we had paid staff. I'm a part-time executive director and I'm also a part-time accounts manager who works 10 hours a week. And together with lots of really kind and generous volunteers and super, super part-time kind of gig type um, people, we make this whole thing work. <laughs> so... Yeah. You so we've used the term social circus a few times and I think it's 
you know, people use it in different ways, but I'm wondering if you can give sort of an overview of the definition or what you think it is. So, well, the social circus definition is, is a, I don't want to say scandalous, but it's a, a hotly debated and discussed thing. And it manifests differently all over the world and in community. So social circus, I really like to leave it open to the invitation, whoever uses it in their own organizations. But for our organization, when we created the social circus initiative, our intention was really to look to the future of starting to build relationships with foundations and funders who would be interested in in this modality of using circus as a tool for social change. So my very brief description is just circus as a tool for social change. But within our definition that's more specific for who is a member of our initiative, there are a few different things that are really important to us. And one of them is that they're dedicated to a very specific population. Uh, Another one is that they are dedicated to measuring the outcomes of their program. And so those are two things that there are lots of people who identify as social circus. And I believe very, very firmly that any circus is really social in a way. All circus is positive for youth development, for adult development, for, you know, social interaction, for physical fitness, for there's so many. It's just a good thing. But in order to start to build a culture of social circus being funded or having studies done about it or having a foundation really believe that they want to invest in it, we have to start being more specific about who it's for and what it does for those communities. And so that's why we have dedicated to being a little bit more specific about what it means for us. But that does not mean that it has to mean that for everybody else. However, that's kind of what and and I actually was a little bit nervous about kind of saying that to the world. But we've had no pushback at all. I think everybody really understands the importance of being specific and measurable when it comes to funding. And people want to jump on that. If anything, we've had people just say, you know what, we're going to start to try to measure our outcomes. We're going to really define who we work with and we're going to evolve what we do so that we can be a part of that movement towards this becoming more present in the eyes and minds of funders and social circus, social service organizations and things like that. You brought up a few really interesting points, but I'll, I'll talk about funding for a moment. Do you find that it's more difficult or that you have different challenges fundraising for an, or- an organization like ICO, which is uh, is not like a actual circus company? So, for example, Circus Mercus or Flora mm-hmm. or Big Apple, when they existed, or Circus Harmony put on a show, they sort of have the outwards appearance of being a um, a big top tented circus. Do you feel like raising money mm-hmm. for ICO is a sort of different kind of challenge since it's a broader organization? Yeah. So I think the main the main um, thing that's challenging about a national membership organization, and this is the same with, you know, even something like a, I don't know, any kind of like thing that has branches around the country, you know, like a Boy Scouts or a Girl Scouts or something like there's like the national headquarters that, well, maybe that's a little bit different because they're the same organization. I'm trying to think of a another organization that's kind of similar, but you're a membership organization that supports a lot of other nonprofits, right? So we're a nonprofit that supports lots of other nonprofits. And so we completely honor and respect that all of those other nonprofits have their own contacts, their own funders, their own relationships, and that most of the money is going to go directly to them, 
you know, everybody who wants to support circus, there are enough nonprofit circus organizations in communities now, which is a beautiful thing, that the money is going to kind of stay in the community. You know, Circus Mercus has an amazing kind of plethora of funders that they've developed long-term relationships with and Circus Harmony has that and Trenton Circus Squad has that and that's so exciting and we want that to happen. It also means that a lot of those people are donating their time and energy to those organizations directly. So it's a very small amount of people who then want to look at the wider community and say, I want to help this national force that is helping all the smaller organizations to make things happen. And what we found is that we have such an amazing relationship with organizations like Circus Mercus or Trenton Circus Squad, who are really expert fundraisers and ha- can kind of see the nuance in the people they work with to say, you know what, I, we have this relationship with the American Youth Circus Organization, and I feel like you might be interested in the work that they're doing because of the way that it supports us. And we know that you really want to support us. So there's a little bit of that narrative when it comes to building relationships for the American Youth Circus Organization, because we really at this point, and this is somewhere where I'd really like to grow, we don't have many relationships that are not directly related to circus. And that's something that I hope will happen as we move on, that we'll, as a national organization, be able to align ourselves with the idea that we are kind of this national force as, a, as opposed to the fact that we are just a circus organization. And our organization is almost exclusively earned income. It's through membership and through events and things like that. So we actually don't have a huge history of fundraising in a big, big way. And it's something that we're going to need to do as we move forward. And, you know, we applied for a national endowment for the arts grant once, didn't get it, but that's how it works. You know, so we're like just starting to do this kind of thing. And the social circus initiative for the first time has a little bit of development money in the budget um, in order to help us move that further. But when it comes to funding, we're definitely non-traditional in the sense that we are mostly earned income and that our relationships with individuals is not, it's not, there are not as many donor relationships. We've had a few really incredible donor relationships and they have all come through other circus organizations that are really established who have been generous and kind of been able to see the wider gaze of how it will impact everyone if those relationships are shared with us. And it is really important for me to mention, too, that Cirque du Soleil has supported our organization since the very first meeting that was ever held about, oh, maybe we should start um, an organization. Cirque du Soleil gave the seed money for us to first have our P.O. box and our phone, um, a file box for our files, you know, to, to file for incorporation. So Cirque du Soleil has always been very supportive. And I think a lot of people don't realize just how many people work at Cirque du Soleil for things that don't relate to their shows. You know, they have an incredible kind of global citizenship department there that really works to engage with communities. And they are the ones who have made it possible for us to have the social circus initiative. So they have funded that in partnership with a bunch of other local circus organizations. Um, and, you know, it's always a team effort, but Cirque du Soleil has really been helpful for us. Yeah, I have to say, Cirque du Soleil is an amazing, amazing role model for having a a wing of your for profit entity doing non mm-hmm. non profit things. They host shows for other organizations. They donate, like you're talking about, and they do well. You did it as well. Maybe you can talk about their social circus training program that you also participated in. Oh yeah, yeah. So one of the ways that and Cirque du Soleil's um, outreach 
work has evolved over the years. You know, they changed ownership. There, there have been, you know, a lot of people in the circus community have been following what has happened with Cirque du Soleil. And so things have evolved in and priorities have shifted. And I think that's a healthy thing that they have kept their global citizenship and social action branch where a lot of organizations when ownership changes would just get rid of that, quite frankly. So it's great that it's still there. And part of what they do is this social circus training and it's a two week training that helps to instill circus educators with the capacity to do social circus work in the specific model that Cirque du Soleil has developed through Cirque du Monde, which is their outreach program, which is a collaboration between a circus educator practitioner and a social worker or other person in that kind of clinical world. So that's not the model that everybody uses in social circus. That is specifically the model that has been um, at Cirque du Monde sites around the country. And Cirque du Monde sites were, there are about 90 of them around the world. Some of them have folded in the past few years and are hoping to come back. But they were direct relationships between Cirque du Soleil and um, like a drop-in center for homeless youth or a community center, places like that. And that model is about a social worker and a circus practitioner working together. And so this two-week training is really like you don't do any circus in the training. You do all talking about how to work through this model, playing lots of games, putting yourself in lots of positions where you kind of realize things uh, <laughs> through the back door of like, oh, my gosh, I just had this experience of what it must be like to have this trauma or something like that so that you can try to – better understand, even though we can never truly understand everyone's experience, to try to be more sensitive to it and to try to be safe as a circus educator in situations that may be tenuous or things like that. So it's an amazing training. And we're working with um, with them to do a different kind of training right before our educators conference. I got all excited and derailed before about talking about that, but I should <laughs> mention that. Our, our circus educators conference is coming up October 6th to the 10th in San Francisco. It's a collaboration between the circus center and experts, which are both next to each other, which is really exciting that we're working all together. And before the conference, we have 17 participants coming for a pre-conference hosted by Cirque du Soleil. That's all about creating continuous um, training models for trainers in circus. So how do you avoid burnout? How do you keep your curriculum evolving? How do you kind of build the capacity among your staff so that it's not the executive director founder who has to do everything? Because this is kind of a thing, you know, founder syndrome is a thing in all, all of the arts, but especially in circus where you have a very passionate person with very specific skill sets. And for the longevity of the organization, you have to start to pass that down. You have to start to hand the responsibility down. And so we've had a really specific kind of call out to these a lot of these powerhouse circus organizations saying we'd like your program director to apply you know we don't want your executive director to apply we want to see that you have this next level of capacity of additional support within your organization that can help it grow and flourish and who can help put policies in place and innovate within how you work with your staff and your curriculum and your students so i'm really excited about that and the circus educators conference is going to be amazing we have, I don't know how many workshops now. We have maybe 110 workshops or the something like that all happening. So awesome. Circus education. <laughs> yeah, I wish you could come. Me too. We'll be time. in the middle of rehearsals. But, I mean, the amount of talks you guys have in classes, um, it's going to be a real whirlwind week for the people who do go. 
Yes, it's always very intense and wonderful. At the same time, we have Judy Finelli speaking. We have Shane Carroll speaking. Really, really exciting circus folks um, to share their wisdom with keynote speeches and a lot of talk about social circus, also circus education related to high-level aerial work. It's really diverse. Um, and especially as we start to define cir- social circus more specifically, we can be really targeted about how we talk about that. And we're having workshops about evaluation and about fundraising. And when it comes to evaluation, I'm really excited to share this. So I'm just going to say it is that we are, we have commissioned the first ever study about social circus and social and emotional learning. And it's kicking off this fall and it's going to go through May. And we have eight different sites. Circus Marcus is one of them. And they're going to be working with the Weikert Center. And they're an amazing organization that does research about youth development and social and emotional learning, SEL, which is like in the youth development word, big buzzword. It's like, oh, SEL, SEL. And so we're going to evaluate how circus relates to SEL. And I think it's going to be a really good jumping off point to be able to advocate for circus with funders and with more mainstream, you know, more mainstream outlets. When will that, when will that study, study conclude? When will there be information available? It should conclude around May. Oh, wow. So probably within the next year. That's exciting. Yeah, within the next year. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. So yeah, we'll share. The whole intention is that we share all the things. So we're going to share it with everyone. We've gotten amazing like buy-in from the different social circus organizations who are taking part. Everybody has just been waiting for this. So it was a series of happy accidents that we found this center. There was actually a New York Times article written about the work that they do for other youth organizations. There's like a sailing. Maybe I'll find the article and send it to you. There's a sailing group and another youth like arts group. But what's cool about the study is that not only does it measure circus and social emotional learning, but they've done this same study with many other youth forms. So there's also the idea of kind of seeing circus next to dance and drama and art and sailing and mentor programs and other things like that. Oh, I'm really excited to to read that. One of the things I want to talk about also was Circus Culture and that that startup that you yeah. recently kickstarted. Uh, successfully. Yeah. Um, maybe you can talk about uh, the Kickstarter and also what the organization does. Sure. So Circus Culture is a circus school that I started in Ithaca, New York, which is where I live. And it is intended to provide circus opportunities and education to everyone in our small community in upstate New York. And since being in college, I went to college in Ithaca and I live here still. I always wanted to start a circus school in Ithaca. So while I was traveling and I always kind of imagined I was sewing things up so I could ring myself out here because I really love this community. And there hasn't been a kind of gathering force of circus here, although there are actually a handful of professionals who live here or, you know, hobbyists who live here. There was definitely already some energy, but it needed galvanizing. And I kind of, as I went down my path, realized, okay, now it's time to move to Ithaca. And I moved here three years ago and started to just show up to anything remotely related to circus that I could imagine. A handstand class at a yoga studio, a Bouteau performance, an ecstatic dance, like anything related to movement and circus in my very broad definition. And then making, building relationships, starting this circus thing in the park, just trying to assert that I really didn't want to be invasive. That was my most, the most important thing to me was that I didn't come and just plop down a circus school. Because one of the the great benefits of working for ICO is that I'm blessed to have this kind of bird's eye view of what works and what doesn't as a general rule, you know, and I've seen that when something is really invasive, it is shunned. It's like, no, you 
you know, like, where are you coming from? Why are you doing this? Why didn't you first have a conversation with us? Um, and so I didn't want to be brash about it. And I wanted to be really, I wanted by the time I started the Kickstarter for people to know that it was happening. So there was this slow development. And then we did a crowdfunding campaign and we raised $27,000 with matched 25 that I had raised kind of personally through personal connections. Congrats. And that's then no, that's no mean feat. <laughs> Yeah, it was my first, it was really my first foray into fundraising like that. Like I had never, even for ICO, where in a lot of, a lot of other executive directors do a lot of fundraising. It's actually not a huge part of my job at the moment for ICO. So it was really new for me. And I knew it was like the one time I was ever going to do this for circus culture. The plan was I need to have a sustainable business model. I need to know that this is, money that's going to go in and then it's going to continue to generate and hopefully be successful. I'm not going to ask for this every year. You know, I don't think that works. So circus culture is our, it's a beautiful little space in downtown Ithaca and we have all of the circus things and we have everyone from young and old who comes through to take classes. We have about 20 classes a week at the moment and we just turned one year old. Congratulations. And it's Yeah. Thanks. You're always welcome to come if you ever want to come. Upstate. Oh yeah. Next time in the Ithaca, <laughs> yep. there's no way I'm, I'm missing out. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. And it's been so great because a lot of people have connections to Ithaca that you wouldn't realize. And so, so many people from the national community have just showed up at our doors being like, oh, my uncle lives here. Oh, I went to college here. <laughs> it's so, so great. And um, and it's been really amazing to balance it with my ICO work because the reality of running a national nonprofit is you sit on your computer alone a lot and you do work to instigate circus and to help build community. And hope, hopefully you're like, you know, you're emailing lots of great people, but you're actually not with them. And I really, you know, love being in community. And so having circus culture has provided this sense of local tangible circus. Like I'm teaching 12 classes a week and I'm able to be up in the air and I'm able to be inspired by the young people who come through and by the adults who try for the first time. And it really sparks so much more kind of idea generation and just fervor to do the work through the American Youth Circus Organization. And even though it's many, many hours more than, <laughs> than one part-time job, it is so much more nourishing to have the two kind of compatible angles of working with a national gaze and also being really rooted locally and being in circus and being able to produce local shows and being able to bring joy to the local community and learn from the local community. And yeah, it's so wonderful. And I bring all my staff to ICO events. You know, it's, I really see the power of ICO through the way that my staff come back nourished after going to an event or have a new perspective or challenge me in an awesome way because they've learned from someone in Kentucky, how to do something new. And it's so great. So it's been a really wonderful pairing and I'm excited about it moving forward. Yeah. I mean, it's really amazing how ICO has this sort of national presence. And I'm wondering if you can, you can talk about what you've seen and noticed as far as the rise of circus schools in the U.S., particularly we have this new school in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. NECA in Brattleboro is getting bigger. Schools in Portland, Maine. Mm -hmm. um, and if you've seen any trends that, that you think are interesting. Definitely. Oh, there's so many events. It's like my favorite topic. But <laughs> the so I think there are kind of two trends that are related. The first trend, and we actually did a census through ICO in 2010 that aimed to try to put some numbers on what was happening in the circus community. And we found that 90% of the youth circus organizations were founded in the past 25 years, which is a huge percentage. And 
I like to like my kind of theory about that is that I trace it to the kind of new circus movement um, in New York and in California and the way that people kind of found circus for the first time in their 20s, like the Jessica Hintoffs and the people who I learned from. Um, and then that sparked a lot of people kind of traveling around, finding circus, having careers, and then for one reason or another, settling in a community and starting a program with this idea that they could really share this with other people. And that happened and that happened in St. Louis and that happened in New York and it happened all over the place. And then there became this layer of circus education opportunity as a res direct result of the kind of resurgence of new circus in America. That's my theory about it. And from that kind of group of people settling came this next generation of people like me who learned from those folks who were generous enough to share their skills. And that is what has made this exponential growth because then we have generations on generations of people now who went to NECA and now have started their own schools. And it's like, I feel like we're almost in the third generation now of, of people who have learned from people who have learned from people. And it has been kind of proven that opening a circus school thing to do. I know very few circus schools that have closed. Like that's one thing that I see when I look widely is the only reason that they've closed is because of like personal issues or someone really not being predisposed for running a business. Like you have to be a solid business person or willing to learn to be one. But when that is in place, circus schools are very successful, not very successful in that they make huge amounts of money, but they survive and they're hopefully able to slowly over time pay people a living wage, pay people better than a living wage, you know, start to get up to speed with what's appropriate when it comes to running a business. But so we see this growth of circus schools. And then kind of with that is this idea of the pre-professional and professional training programs. And that's what we've really seen a, a surge of in the past few years. And I actually wrote my thesis largely about that in grad school is this idea of what is going to make it so that we can have the circus school sector that can parallel those in Europe, in South America, in Australia, all over the world. Um, you know, members of the Federation of European Circus Schools, FedEx, if, you, if anyone hasn't explored that website, it's a great website to explore. There are, you know, degree granting circus schools all over the world. And why is it that the attempts in the United States to to kind of get to that level of training haven't quite gotten there. And my opinion of that is that we are a grassroots movement. And I kind of mentioned this before. There's also this top-down approach that happens when a government dedicates itself to supporting something. Like in Finland, there was an opera house and a theater space and a dance house, and there was no circus space. And so an advocacy group worked really, really hard, but then a circus building was built for $7 million to support circus along with those other art forms. Right? We will never have that kind of access to infrastructure from the top down. But what we do have is incredible passion, incredible skills, incredible savvy and entrepreneurship. And so that has started to grow these little seedlings of programs like the NECA program, which, you know, first was one year, then two years, then three years, maybe four years. Who knows with their new building um, with a loft in Chicago really asserting that they have a two-year program with Circadium in Philadelphia now having a state-recognized um, certificate for a three-year program. It's all really, really exciting to see. And I think that circus educators are really stepping up to the plate to say, we have a responsibility to provide really comprehensive circus education. Like, I, I think the important conversation, and it feels like it's just starting to happen, is what is actually required to responsibly educate someone to be a professional artist. And one year is really not enough, in my opinion, and I think others would share it. Um, one year of training 
really is not enough to become a professional circus artist. So within the ability of these organizations, which are also running nonprofit circus schools, which is a whole job in itself, how do you start to develop a program that can get to the point of being comprehensive enough to put really kind of like international level artists out there? And I feel like we're working our way towards that. And there's more of a dialogue about a responsibility to do that. For students. And I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're on the way. Like there seems to be a really clear awareness that we need to provide multi-year comprehensive professional level training if artists want to really go out in the world and be competitive internationally. Man, that's a that got me excited, that answer. <laughs> Good. I'll talk about this topic with you like for hours after this. I love this topic. <laughs> <laughs> So we usually wrap up the podcast with a few um, questions we, we tend to ask all our guests. But one that I thought that would be great to ask you about is, are there any books or papers um, or re- just general research that you would recommend uh, to somebody who's listening that you've read recently and thought was particularly interesting or as- inspiring? Sure. I have a bunch, actually. I'm looking at my bookcase. Um one that I love, I think is a classic, is Semiotics at the Circus by Paul Buisak. Great book. It's great book, um, Circus Bodies. And I'm not good at pronouncing Peta Tait's name. Do you know how to pronounce her name? I do not know. Oh. It's spelled P-E-T-A-T-A-I-T, Circus Bodies. I have literally a full thing of post-its in that book with notes. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> I really love the book From Ritual to Theater, which is by Victor Turner. It's uh, the kind of subtitle is The Human Seriousness of Play. And it talks about uh, liminality. And it's really interesting for art making and also just thinking about circus and play and theater and how it all relates. Um, and ooh, another one I really I have so many books. The, another one I really love is Women's Circus, which is about the women's circus in Australia. And it doesn't actually look, it doesn't actually have an author because it's co-authored by the collective of women, but it has a lot of really amazing reflections and essays and poems and also diagrams about how they run their women's circus as a collective. And it was started as a way to help um, women who had been victims of domestic violence through circus. And it's evolved into this kind of community staple in Australia. So those are a few of my favorites. Um, I have lots of favorites. Those are, I'll make a list for that's you. That's good. We'll we'll put we'll put links to those in, in the in the description of the podcast. Has awesome. There... Oh, one other one that I can't not mention is Reg Bolton's thesis called "Why Circus Works." That is that like when it comes to youth circus is kind of like the Bible, and it's the thing that has sparked a lot of other research. You know, in his in his um, work, he was very clear about the limitations as academics have to be, which I think is a great thing about academia is saying what I'm not going to tackle in this paper. And that has sparked a lot of other people doing work. And so there's kind of a lineage that has sparked from Reg Bolton's um, thesis and PhD work. Oh, cool. Has there been any piece of advice uh, that you've gotten from a mentor or a friend that you feel has really um, stuck with you, particularly maybe as it relates to your circus career? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I one piece of advice that Zoe Brooks, my mentor, has given me is the fact that numbers are really powerful when you're telling a story. And so in my role as an executive director, one of the things I've really had to work on is talking about money and thinking about budgets and 
And she really helped me shift it from being a, um, a scary thing to an empowering thing to think about using numbers to really tell the story and bring attention to what you believe in. And with circus, it's especially important to be loud and clear about that kind of thing. So I'm really grateful that she offered me that advice. Yeah. Num numbers. Numbers are a good thing, particularly, I think, almost for any part of circus, even when you're doing it on um, the production side, having having numbers mm -hmm. is, is helpful, just telling the story. Uh, and yeah. then final question, uh, who do you think we should have on the podcast? Ooh, who should you have on the podcast? I would love to have, hear Jay Gilligan I was talking podcast. about him last night after I saw his, <laughs> he had a really great post on, on Facebook. Yeah, on that Crying Out Loud video. Exactly. Yep, totally. Yeah, I think Jay Gilligan would be um, a really exciting guest. Who else would be really exciting? Um, I don't know. Jay oh, Gilligan is a great is a great answer. We can is that use, a good answer. Yeah, we'll use that's Jay good Gilligan. Enough. Amy, thank you so much for coming on a podcast. This was a really really interesting interview, and I really appreciate being able to talk to somebody about uh, social circus because it's not a topic I get to chat about uh, too much, or we haven't talked about that much. Yet. Oh, awesome! Great. Well, it's such an honor. Awesome, Amy. Thank you so much. <laughs>